8.12. And then we're going to go over to chapter 12, verses 24 through uh, 26. And one more will be John 12.36. So let's begin with 8.12. It says, Then Jesus spoke to them again, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. And then in chapter 12, verse 24, it says, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls to the, into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. He who loves his life will lose it, and he who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, let him follow me, and where I am, there my servant will be also. And if anyone serves me, him my Father will honor. And then in verse 36, it says, While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of the light. Father, we thank you for your word. And uh, Lord, I pray that you would help us to pull all this together for the message that your Holy Spirit has for us this day. And we love you and we praise you and give you thanks for it. In Jesus' name and everybody's time. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. All right. So this is something that I don't, I don't do very often. Uh, and that is teach a topical message. Uh, tonight, the title of my message is Jesus is the light that leads us in the things of God. And uh, so that's what we're going to talk about tonight. We start out verse 12 of chapter 8. It says, Then Jesus spoke to them again, saying, I am the light of the world. And he who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. This I am, the light of the world, is the second of the seven I am's in the Gospel of John. The first one we find in John 6, it says, I am the bread of life. Because Jesus alone can sustain us, who are but starving beggars looking for food. He says, I am the light of the world, as we see here in John 8. Jesus is the original and eternal source of light in the universe for us who are spiritually blind by birth. And the third one is, I am the gate of the sheepfold. Jesus is the only door to life. For us who are lost outside of God's will in John chapter 10. He says, I am the good shepherd. Jesus knows and cares for us who are orphaned, wandering sheep without a shepherd again in John chapter 10. The fifth one is, I am the resurrection and the life. Jesus is the key to escaping spiritual death for us who are hopelessly doomed to death because of our sins. John 11. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus is the accessible path, the illuminating truth, and the giver of life for us who are lost, ignorant, and dead without him. John chapter 14. And then finally, the seventh one. He says, I am the true vine. Jesus is the source of eternal life for us who are dead and useless branches apart from him, according to John chapter 15. So, he makes these statements, and this one that we're going to focus on tonight, where he says, I am the light of the world. 
Uh, there's a significance in the term where John uses, where he says, I am, and that is that this is the Greek translation of the same words that are used in the Hebrew Old Testament, where in Exodus chapter 3, verses 14 and 15, where God said to Moses, I am who I am, and he said, thus you shall say to the children of Israel, I am has sent you. In the Greek Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, the same words are used there for I am as they are here in the Gospel of John. Ego eme. That is the Greek term. And so it is a clear statement that Jesus is making about himself. He says, I am. And as a matter of fact, in John chapter 8, when, Jesus, when the Pharisees were questioning Jesus uh, and they, he said that he um, was before Abraham was, I am. And they knew exactly what he was saying when he said, I am. He said, before Abraham was, ego eme, I am. I am God. And how do we know that they knew that? Well, it says immediately they, put, they took up stones uh, to stone him. They were going to kill him because they, they considered it blasphemy. He just said a blasphemous statement. He said, I am, I am the I am. So this is really important that we understand that when he uses this term, I am, that he means that he is all-encompassing of everything that we could possibly need in our life, both for life and for godliness. He is everything. He's all-sufficient to give us strength, to give us power, to fulfill our needs, to satisfy our hungers, our desires, our wants, everything. He is the becoming one because that's what that term means when God said, tell them that I am has sent you. It is tell them that I am the one that is everything that they need. I become Whatever, not that he's a chameleon, that he changes who he is. He says, I, by my character and my nature, I become everything that you need. And that's what Jesus is saying here. And so there's a great significance in that. Three things that we're going to look at in, in this verse, this one verse, and then there's others that we're going to look in in the next two uh, pericopes. The first one is this. And we want to look at what did Jesus mean by this statement, I am the light of the world? What does he mean by that? And then secondly, what does it mean to not walk in darkness anymore? Because that's what that verse says there. It says that if you're walking in the light, you will not walk in darkness any longer. So what does that mean? And then thirdly, what does it mean to have the light of life? Because this is the focus of this, is light. When he says, I am the light of the world, this is a profound statement. We kind of brought that picture together already, but still it is. It is a very profound statement when he says, I am the light of the world. And when you consider the statement, what comes to your mind? I would ask that question. What comes to your mind? When I think of this, my mind immediately goes to natural light. It does. You know, when I think of 
Jesus is the light. And, and it's okay to bring that into the, into the picture of all this, right? Because, and we'll see as we're going through this, that when God declared, let there be light in Genesis, we find in the first chapter of the Gospel of John that God, John says, Jesus was that light. When he said, let there be light, this was he, this was he. he is that light. But there are natural aspects to light as well. You come in a room, you turn on the light, right? It dispels the darkness. And that's really important that we understand that. Because not only does it have its natural qualities, but it has its spiritual quality as well. That if the light is dwelling in us, then there is no darkness any longer, right? Now, of course, I mean, believe it or not, this same section of Scripture, this same message that I'm giving, I took three days to preach one time. So I'm going to try to, I'm going to, try to parse it down to a one-hour teaching. But the truth is, is that when we're talking about the, the darkness and the light, and now that light is in us, no, there is no darkness in us any longer, we still have to deal with the issue of the flesh. It doesn't mean that, that we don't sin any longer. It doesn't mean that we, we don't even struggle with sin any longer. But what it does mean is that we will no longer live in that sin. If we truly have the light in us, we will, not, we will no longer live in that sin. I enter the room, I flip the switch, the light goes on, I go to sleep at night and I expect that the sun will rise and there will be light. But this means so much more than that. Jesus is the only one who can say this, that he is the light of the world. As a matter of fact, when we get into the book of Revelation, we see that when it's all said and done, there is no longer a need for the sun, for he will be the source of life and light in the whole of creation, the whole of the universe. It will no longer be necessary because he will be that light. In declaring himself to be the light of the world, Jesus was claiming that he is the exclusive source of spiritual light. There is none other, no matter what. I mean, there are those that try to claim that they are, that they have some kind of enlightenment for the mind and the heart of, of men and women. But if they, if they have anything to offer, it is some truth that can be found in God, but as always, they pollute whatever they bring with it by bringing some other thing into it, trying to take away from the completeness and the sufficiency of God for everything. They're always trying to add to it. You know, if you find in cults or false religions or whatever it may be, you'll find there's always going to be spiritual truth that they will have in there. But the problem is they're always bringing something else in with it. You know, it's like drinking a glass of water that you can see it looks great, except for the last part of it. It's got about an inch of mud in it. Do I really want to drink that? Right? No other source of spiritual truth is available to mankind. 
in First John, uh, John 1, 5, it's descriptive of Christ's person. It said, this is the message which we have heard from him and declared to you, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. That means there's zero darkness. And when there is light, there is no room for darkness. In Psalm 4, verses 6 through 8, it says, There are many who say, Who will show us any good? Lord, lift up the light of your countenance upon us. You have put gladness in my heart, more than the season that the grain and wine increased. I will both lie down in peace and sleep, for you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. God is our light, and he is our safety. There are two types of light in the world. We can perceive one, or both, or neither. When we are born into this world, we perceive physical light. And by it, we learn of God's handiwork and the things we see. However, although that light is good, there is another light. A light so important that the Son of God had to come in order to both declare and impart it to men. For we were lost in darkness. And John eight twelve records that when Jesus says, uh, Jesus spoke again to the people. He said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness. The metaphor used by the Lord in this verse speaks of the light of his truth, the light of his word, the light of eternal life. Those who perceive the true light will never walk in spiritual darkness. Darkness is the absence of light. That's, what, that's how you define what darkness is. It's the absence of light. Because where there is light, there is no darkness. Now, we're limited in a room like this. Even as I look around, I can look down and I can see by your feet there are shadows. There is, to some degree, some darkness that is there, but by and large, the light has completely overwhelmed the room. You know, there is no real darkness in here, even though you might see a shadow, the light overcomes. So it is, too, in the believer's life. The light of God and his word overcomes the darkness in our life, which you know, that means that there's something that has to take place within our heart and our life for that to be true. We have to have that time in the light, otherwise darkness will creep in. Without it, we will find ourselves feeling like we are in the darkness. But the good news is this, right? That Jesus is more powerful than the darkness. Greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. And of course, the one who is in the world, he is darkness. Even though he manifests himself at times as an angel of light, he is darkness because there is no light in him whatsoever. And never will be, never can be. There was at one point in time before he fell, he was full of light, just like the other angelic beings. But because of his rebellion, darkness crept into his heart. And now he is a dark, a dark being. I almost said soul. He's not a soul. He's an angel. 
But the truth is, there is no light in him, even though it's a, it's a false miracle that he, pre- he presents himself as an angel of light. And we are actually told to beware of that. The interesting thing about light is it doesn't take a lot to diffuse darkness, right? You, almost all of you have been here for our candlelight services on, around Christmas time, right? And uh, one of the things we love about that service is that we take and uh, we start out with a small candle up front, gives very little light in the room, but then we take and we start lighting each other's candles before you know it. The whole room is lit up well enough to where we can see real good. Not as good as this kind of light, but certainly good enough where you can walk around and not trip and fall and everything else. Just from this small little light. It doesn't take a bright light to make a difference in us. But God offers us a very bright light. A very bright light. There is power in light. The brighter the light, the more darkness is destroyed. Likewise, the light of Jesus Christ has to be taken into the darkness of sin that engulfs the hearts and the lives of those who are not following him. That's the condition behind having this light, that we follow him. If we do not follow him, we will not have this light, this truth, this eternal life. There's a passage of scripture, and it's a long one, and I don't even hope to get through all this if we were to turn there. The gospel of uh, the uh, chapter of the Gospel of John, chapter 9, verses 1 through 41. There's an account that is given there of a man who Jesus heals who is blind from birth. And we see there that he has that power to touch him and to open his eyes and to reveal to him the light, the light of the world and the light of God as well. They come synonymously, to be honest with you, that when we, when, we have, when we live in darkness and we receive Christ, everything looks different. Everything. I remember when I got saved, I've shared my testimony so many times, but I was a drunk. I was 22, year old, 22 years old. I was a drunk. And when I accepted Christ, it literally took 30 days before all the alcohol was out of my system. And I remember getting up that, that morning after that period of time, getting up, going from the bedroom to go into the refrigerator that morning to get a drink of ice water, and my house looked completely different to me. I thought I was in a strange place. And I said, Lord, what's going on? I don't understand. I knew where I was. And the Lord says, you're seeing the world through sober eyes. So it looked different. And that's what happens when our hearts and our minds are illuminated with the light of Christ. Everything looks different. The things things that did not look evil and dark to me before look horrifying to me now. And and that's been a gradual thing. There are certain things that look horrific from the onset. But as time goes on, the darkness of the world and the darkness of the heart of man, it becomes darker and darker in my view because of the brighter and brighter the light is in my heart and my life. I'm an old guy now, 
So I need a little help with things. Glasses on my face are not unexpected as I'm getting older, of course. But what is unexpected is that even with glasses, I find it very difficult to see. There's these things that are growing on my eyes. They call them cataracts. And with those cataracts, it makes it difficult for me to see things clearly, even though I can see things. So now I bought a 10,000 lumen flashlight. (laughs) So now when I want to see something, I can see it because I can illuminate that thing. Well, I got to tell you, I mean, the lumens of God's Holy Spirit and his effect upon our heart and minds are off the scale. They're brighter than you. You can't, there's nothing to compare it with. Not here. The only thing to compare it with is God and his brightness and his glory being so bright that when Moses said, let me see your glory, he said, I can't do that. Hit him in the cleft of the rock, passed by, and just what just fell off and kind of touched him a little bit was enough that when Moses came down off the mountain, his face shone so brightly that the people said, cover your face, we cannot look at you. Because the glory of God was too intense. And that was just a little partial, just a speck of the glory of God. So just think of what it's going to be like when we stand before him in his presence. And the nice thing about it is, is When we are there, we will be able to stand in his presence without being destroyed because our sin will be eradicated completely and thoroughly. We will be a new person in his presence. We know that darkness is in this world. It doesn't take much. I mean, just watch the news for a little bit and you see all the stuff that's going on. I mean... um, you know, I'm so totally pro-Israel that it's not even funny, but I still grieve when I see the death that's taking place over there in that war with all those people who do not know Christ. Thousands and thousands of people dying that don't know Jesus. The only thing that brings me peace and comfort is I know that they are God's people and that God is in it and and that there are there are both Jews and Palestinians that are getting saved. People are finding Jesus, and it's very typical of war. It doesn't matter what war it is. You know, even what's going on over in Ukraine. I mean, many of those soldiers, the Ukrainians and and Russian soldiers, they're finding Christ in the midst of it. You know, when you're faced with death, with your, you know, your eternity, it causes you to seriously consider where you stand before a holy God. And so we thank the Lord for that. But it's still, it's a grievous thing to me to see what's going on in the world. And, and that's, that's one thing. I mean, it just goes on and on and on. And I could spend all of my time uh, talking about the things that are going on. But I'd rather talk about the light. I'd rather talk about what God is doing, what God has done, and what he wants to do for us. Physical light is necessary for physical life. The earth would certainly change very rapidly if there were no longer any sunlight. A forest full of trees with very thick canopies of foliage high above has very little plant life on the ground except for moss and lichen, which needs little sunlight. Plants will never move away from the light. They are said to be 
positively phototropic, drawn to the light. In the same way, spiritual light is necessary for spiritual life. And this can be a good test of our standing in Christ. The believer will always tend toward spiritual things. He will always tend toward fellowship, prayer, the word of God, and so on. The unbeliever does the opposite. In John 1, 5, it says, The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. Those who do not know Christ will always be drifting the opposite direction, away from the light. As a matter of fact, uh, you know, I told you about my little flashlight I have. I can't, I can't look at that thing, right, directly. It literally will burn my eye, right? It's that intense. It's hot enough that I was holding it in my hand and I mistakenly put my finger over the lens and it burnt my finger. That, that light out of a flashlight, it's about that long and it's got a battery in it about that big around. I mean, it's nothing. But man, it's intense. And so it is too with God's word in our life as well. And when we look at the light, if we're, not, if we're not cleansed by the Holy Spirit, if we're not willing to be cleansed by the Holy Spirit, we will not endure that light. We'll turn away from it. And that's why those who do not know Christ, they love darkness rather than the light because they find that light offensive just as I would, you would, I would. If I was to shine that light that I have directly in your eye, you'd be going, stop that, quit, for different reasons. For though all of us, the light of God and his word and his Holy Spirit reveals to us the darkness in our life that still remains the darkness we still have. And I have a lot less darkness now than I used to have because constant exposure to the light will take and, and drive that out of me because I don't want that as I see it. It's kind of like one of those lighted magnifying mirrors. You know, when you're young, they look pretty nice. But when you get old... That is an ugly thing. I'm talking about the mirror, of course, right? You understand my point. You know, when you're seeing it for all that it is, then it becomes something you don't want to see. For those who do not know Christ, you can just imagine that's what they see immediately. They see the ugliness of themselves in their dark heart. In John 3, 19 and 20, it says, And this is the uh, condemnation, that the light has come into the world, and that men love darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. Because light exposes his evil, and he hates the light. Indeed, no man can come into the true spiritual light of Jesus Christ unless he is enabled by God. In John 6, 37, it says, All that the Father gives me will he, um, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will by no means cast out. I love that. Because that means that any time that we decide that we want to be in that light, that God will not shun us. He will not turn us away. He will not say no. I don't want you. I don't want you. In, you're, you're too filthy. Can't you see that when that light hits you? No. As a matter of fact, 
God sees us in all our imperfection and our filth as he's calling us, as he's calling our name. When he calls my name, he says, Bob, you dirty, wretched sinner, come to me and I will give you peace and I will give you rest and I will give you forgiveness and I will impute to you the righteousness of my son that you might stand before me. And that was at my worst state. Just think, I'm a little better now. Doesn't have to look through so much stuff as he once did, right? But here's the thing. It's good to talk about the light, and it's good to talk about it being, you know, in our lives. Um, And we understand that when he says that I am the light of the world, that he's talking about that he is the very thing that shows us that we are sinners and need a Savior. That is part of what he's saying. It also is that he's making that statement that, hey, I got all the answers for you. But there's one thing about the light, and that is that following the light takes effort on our part. It doesn't come by osmosis. You know, that's why... um, when I was 16 years old, I, prayer, I prayed a prayer to receive Christ as my Savior. And I walked out that church door, and I went right back to the life that I was living. I never made any turn away from that at all in my life. I made no effort to walk in that light that I just said that I wanted in my life. When I was 22 in front of that liquor store, that was a different story. I said, I wanted, I wanted Jesus in my heart and my life to forgive me of my sins. And I turned from that point on and started walking with the Lord. That was the difference. I, I don't know what happened when I was 16. I, I, you know, if you want to get into some theological debate about it, that's fine. I don't care, to be honest with you. All I know is this, is that right now I have eternal life in Jesus Christ. And if it was when I was 16, I don't think it's so, to be honest with you, because I don't believe that there was a conversion, there was a profession, but there was no change, there was no repentance, and without repentance, there is no forgiveness. So there, there I said it anyways, I wasn't going to, but when I was 22, that's what happened, right? And I began to walk with the Lord, and I love Psalm 1, it's one of my favorite passages of scripture because it talks about what's necessary and the reward of when we follow God in obedience right blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly nor stands in the path of sinners nor sits in the seat of the scornful but his delight is in the law of the Lord and in his law he meditates day and night He shall be like a tree planted by rivers of water that brings forth its fruit in its season, whose leaf shall not wither, and whatever he does shall prosper. That's a promise from God. The ungodly are not so. This is another promise. But are like the chaff which the wind drives away. Therefore the ungodly shall not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. Two promises that are given to the godly and to the ungodly. I, I love it, not because of the promise to the ungodly, but because of the promise to the godly, right? What makes me godly? 
I'm such a righteous guy. You know, I do, I keep the law. I, I, I never sin anymore. You know, I, I do everything right. That's what makes me godly, right? No, to be honest with you, it is the fact that I walk with God. I walk with God. It's, it's always interesting. I don't mean to get too far off from my study, but, you know, in Genesis where it says that when Adam and Eve fell, that they hid themselves, they covered themselves with fig leaves. And prior to that, that God walked with them in the garden. In the garden is one of my favorite hymns. He walked with me and he talked with me. And he told me I was his own. What a glorious promise of God. You know, the, the sad part about it is, is that even though they had fallen, they did not need to hide themselves. They needed to reveal themselves. And God would have treated them the way that he did. He continued fellowship with them, even though they were banned from the garden now. Life was going to be different. But God continued fellowship with them. And that's, that's the glorious thing. When I read something like Psalm 1, it's not about my perfection. It's about my willingness to walk with him and to confess my sin to reveal myself to him and not to withhold that and of course first john 1 9 you know if we confess our sin he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sin and more than just to forgive us that is to cleanse us from all righteousness that is to take all that would be the result of continuing in that unrighteousness that would lead to death that would lead to destruction that would lead to sorrow. He will remove that from our lives. Sin brings consequence. It always does. Depending upon what we do and how long we stay there will depend upon what kind of consequence we have. If I'm quick, if I sin and I turn around and go, Lord, oh, forgive me, you know, there's going to be a short little consequence, you know. Sometimes not any at all because of God's grace and his mercy. It depends on what kind of lesson I need to learn. I'm a hard-headed man. I know you guys find that hard to believe, but it's true. I'm a hard-headed man. And so oftentimes God has to deal with me very severely in order to get me to change. I say I want to change, but sometimes he's got to spank me hard enough to where I don't forget that spanking. And I go, nope, that, that won't happen anymore because I don't want one of those again. I've been to that spiritual woodshed too many times. Jesus is everything we need. And this reminds me of the seven I am's. And we see that our world is going in a direction that we don't like. The answer for that is Jesus. He is the answer for our world. Beloved, I'm telling you, it's not who the next president is. It's not who's going to be our senators. It's not who's going to be the mayor of Sacramento. That's not the answer for our problems. The answer for our problems is that People need Jesus. And when people get Jesus, they change. I am not the man I was before I accepted Christ. And I'd, I would, well, if I would still be alive, I'd still be that same man had I not accepted Christ. Evil, wicked, man, terrible, individual. I'm telling you right now, most of you don't like me. You'd hate me when I wasn't a Christian, I'll tell you that. You know, that's the thing. Because... Christ changes the heart and the life. And as a matter of fact, I'd 
uh, uh, I, I don't know what to call him. Uh, I went to Bible school with him down in Rawls Church, and he's a contemporary of mine. How's that? And he did a teaching series at uh, Fremont Calvary Chapel here a couple of weeks ago on church history. And he shared uh, a little thing about what happened in the just prior to the revival in the 1700s, uh, part of the Great Awakening. And that was that the world was a mess. It, 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 you know, women could not walk across town unescorted because of fear of rape in the 1700s. Okay, this, we think of that today. There are certainly most of all of our communities, we would not want our women folk out by themselves walking on the street at night for fear of some debauchery. But anyways, all these things that were going on, and it, it read like something that was happening right now. And what happened was that there was a movement that began in England for prayer. And they, it spread to Scotland and Ireland and Wales, and this revival broke out. And then as it did, word got over here across the pond to the States, and prayer began to break out. Huge prayer meetings began to break out here in the United States. At that time, it was only the 13 colonies. We hadn't got much past the Louisiana Purchase. As a matter of fact, we hadn't had the Louisiana Purchase yet. So, but the, the, the thing that is said about it, which was so interesting, is that the gatherings became so big, they couldn't find buildings large enough to contain it, and so they started meeting out in the wood under tents. And they had this great revival that broke out here in the United States, and with that, hundreds of thousands, probably even millions of people, got saved, and it turned our nation around. Now, we are just like Israel, if you hadn't figured it out, right? We go through these cycles like the judges. You know, God raises up some folks, and we all follow the Lord. You know, and then after a season, sometimes a generation, sometimes less, you know, no longer are they doing that. They go back to where every man's doing what is right in his own eyes. And boy, are we in that season right now. We've come out of the season of the late 60s, early 70s revival called the Jesus Movement. And now we've seen a generation that has, has gone through that and has passed. And because of that now, we see that its effect has lost its, its power and authority in the world in which we live in. And so we're going back to that season where everybody's doing what is right in his own eyes. <laughs> so here's the thing. What's the answer to it? How do, how do we respond to what's going on? I know what the tendency is today. I got to take the bull by the horns. I got to do something in order to make this happen it depends upon me and getting others with me to pull in the same direction so that we get the right people in the offices that we need to, to oversee this country. That's what's going to do it. It's never worked in the past. And as a matter of fact, our forefathers, which uh, started this nation, all made it very clear 
that when those who are leading this nation no longer are being led by the authority of God in their lives, that the nation was destined to die. That's exactly what we're seeing. So the answer is revival, an awakening once again in the land. And, uh, and boy, is there a need for it? Absolutely. Is there a more difficult time than there is today? I don't know that that I would say that I could see a more difficult time in history past other than the first century. Because at other times, there was still this belief that there was a God. In the first century, there was a belief that there was a God, but it was just whichever one that you chose to believe in. And we've kind of got that going, and then you got the antagonist uh, to the gospel who reject God, reject Christ, reject the church, all of that. So we're kind of like in that first century thing. But the same answer that took place in the first century to turn the world right side up from its upside down state is the same answer to change the world that we're in today. And that is through the preaching and the teaching of the word of God and hearts and souls being converted because as we can see, a good example in our day today is the overturning of Roe v. Wade. It has made a difference. I, I grant you that. But one of the things that it has done is that it has created uh, uh, an antagonism toward those who believe in the right to life and those that don't. So much so that they're, they're, they're building their army greater and greater and greater. They're not done. They're not going to be happy till they get it to where every state allows abortion again. And they're working on it day and night. And they got all the money and they got the political power behind them and everything else. And so what we have is greater because we have God. But unfortunately, I think a lot of people aren't really depending upon the Lord. They're depending upon each other. And I say that because I, I'm still convinced of this. And that is that if we really believed in prayer, that whenever there's a prayer meeting in our church at some time, we would see people busting down the doors to get in here. We don't believe in it. We don't. We say we do, but we don't because we don't practice what we believe. It's like saying I'm a Christian, but nah, I don't go to church. It's like saying I'm a Christian, but I don't follow the Bible. It's in that league, okay? It's not exactly the same. But the truth is that prayer is where you start. And from there, then God will lead his church to do action. But instead, the church is trying to do action without the leading of the Spirit, in my opinion. Maybe I'm wrong. Um, and uh, forgive me if I am. Jesus is everything to us. He shined the light on the sin of those who uh, brought her uh, in. I'm sorry, I left out a part of my note here. He is the only light. He set things right with the woman caught in adultery, right? Now, you remember that story there in the gospel, John, that says that 
there were a bunch of Pharisees who found this woman and caught this woman in the act of adultery and brought her to Jesus and demanded basically that he would judge her, pronounce judgment upon her. And Jesus, knowing what their hearts were like, pointed out to them what their sin was. And he says, okay, he says, let's do this. The first one of you, the, the, the one of you that is without sin, be the first one to cast the stone. And it says, then he knelt down and he began to mark in the sand. Many, pre, many messages have been preached on that one, believe me. What it was exactly, we do not know. But whatever that was going on, the conviction of the Holy Spirit came upon them. That much we do know because it said one by one, starting with the eldest, turned and walked away. Now, let's not misrepresent that. Jesus still dealt with the woman who was caught in adultery. The problem was is they brought her alone and the law required that they bring not only her but him too, both of them. And so Jesus knew what they were doing. It really, they were trying to set him up and they were using her. And he says to her, hey, where are your accusers? She says, they've gone. Where are you, those that condemn you? They are gone. He says, well, I don't condemn you either. But he didn't leave it there. You remember what he said? Go and sin no more. In other words, stop doing what you were doing. God, Jesus dealt with that sin. He shined his light upon her sin, shined the light upon their sin, and he put everything right, just as he does with us, right? Shines the light on our sin, and he tells us, I forgive you when we ask for forgiveness. He said, but now go and sin no more. Don't do it again. When I was young in the Lord, that was part of one of my big problems, I got to tell you, was that because I'd asked for forgiveness and it seemed like it wasn't even two days later and I'd be praying for the same forgiveness because I did it again. You know, how could you possibly forgive me? Well, he is able to do that. And I think partly it's because if we have that heart that grieves over our sin, then he is willing Seventy times seven to forgive us of our sin. Don't abuse it. Don't use it. Repent and let the repentance be genuine. And let your sin grieve your heart to the point to where you don't do it again. You know, when I don't like, you guys have heard me say this so many times before, but uh, the truth is there's no sin in my life that I don't like. The ones I like, I still do them. The ones I don't, I've gotten tired of them, and I've asked the Lord to take them. And by his grace, he has done so. Now, I'm not going to confess my sins to you right now. Uh, but I will just say this. None of them disqualify from my position as pastor of the church. How's that? Right? Uh, all of us have sin in our life. It doesn't matter. And that's why it's so important that we remain in the light, that, we, that the light of God's word shines on us, that the Holy Spirit is constantly working in us so that we will come quickly to beg, to ask, don't need to beg, to ask for forgiveness with genuine repentance in our heart. 
Following Jesus is the condition of two promises here in John 8, 12. First, his followers will never walk in darkness, which is a reference to the assurance of salvation we enjoy. John 1, 5 through 7 says, The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. This man came for a witness to bear witness of the light that all through him might believe. As true followers of the light, we will never follow uh, the ways of sin. When I say that, it means this. There's no way, if I, if I really have the Spirit in my heart, there's no way that I can continue in sin without coming to some point where I repent. If the, if the Spirit of God is in me, then I'm going to repent because His Holy Spirit will not leave me alone. I speak from true experience in my own life of how I tried to walk away from God and the hound of heaven would not stop pursuing me even though I would yell at him, leave me alone. Praise be to God, he would not. He continued on and on to pursue me with his incredible love and his offer of forgiveness with repentance. When we repent of our sin, then we can stay close to the light of the world. In 1 John 2, 1 through 6, it says, My little children, these things I write to you, so that you may not sin. And if, you, if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. Now by this we know that we know him if we keep his commandments. He who says, I know him, and does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, truly the love of God is perfected in him. And by this we know that we are in him. He who says he abides in him ought himself also to walk just as he walked. It's spelled out so clearly, so simply. I'm not saying it's the easiest thing to do in your life, but it is the only thing to do in your life if you're a Christian. It's the only thing, which makes it that there's no toleration for failure. In other words, you can't give up. You can't say, no, I'm not going to do that. If you're a Christian and you're following after Christ, that means that you, you have to, as the psalmist said, you have to walk in the ways of the Lord. You have to draw near to him. His promise is if we draw near to him, he will draw near to us. See, there's this, this effort that, that goes that we make this slight little effort and God makes this huge leap across the universe to meet us where we are. And because of that, he says, then you must follow me. You must walk in my word. You must do the things that I tell you to do. Otherwise, if you don't do that, it's a sign that you actually do not belong to God. And your need is greater than just to profess, to confess a simple sin, but to confess your need for a savior. Because those of us who know him as his Savior, it's 
they, all we lack is just that, is that we need to confess our sin and ask for forgiveness, and he's faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That wonderful good shepherd and his faithful hound of heaven, the Holy Spirit, will pursue you to the end. I'm going to leave it here tonight. We have, uh, we'll get to our second promise next week. Uh, I just got, I'm sorry, I told you, I warned you guys. I taught this over three sessions, so I, I thought I could condense it down, but it didn't work. So we'll pick it up there. But I would, I would leave you with this. The challenge is, you know, where, where are you with God? What's going on in your life with him? Are you pursuing him? Are you pursuing him as much as he's pursuing you? You know, it's always a great combination, right, in a marriage when you have two people that love each other. It's really hard if you have a marriage, one loves one and the other one doesn't love. It doesn't work out too good, right? Unless you're Tevia and his wife, I can't think of her name right now, you know, where they had an arranged marriage, you know, kind of thing. You learn to love one another. But in the relationship with God, that is also essential. That we love him because he first loved us. And that we pursue him because he pursues us. It's always this idea of we are, we are meeting with him. And then we get that blessed privilege Walking with him daily. You know, walking through the valley of the shadow of death. For thou art with me. Yes, he is always with us. Draw near to him. No matter what you're going through, no matter what's going on, right? God is there. His love for you is the same. He wants you to just simply repent if you need repentance. If you don't, if there's nothing that you need to repent of, rejoice and draw near to him. Worship him, give him praise and thanks and, and just have a good time, right? Walk with him in the garden. Yeah, that's why I love that song. I think about that. It's like, hey, then, you know, when they were walking with him in the garden, they hadn't done anything wrong, man. So it was just joy and pure acceleration, you know, of being with God. And that's what we get to experience as believers in Christ. Amen? All right. Father, we come before you. We thank you. I thank you for your word. I just, I'm just so always amazed, Lord, to com contemplate these things. And you truly are the light of the world, and you're the light of our lives. Lord, if we've allowed that light to grow dim, help us, Lord, to push aside all the things that would be in the way of that that we would get cleared out so that the light can shine brightly within us, that the light can reveal to us what needs to be revealed. And sometimes, Lord, the light reveals the good, the good work that you've done in us and the good relationship that we have with you. So it's either way, no matter what, it's always good, Lord. And just like the apostles when the disciples were all leaving him, Jesus asked his, his, his apostles, will you leave me as well? And then Peter speaks up and he says, leave you? 
Where else would we go? You alone have the words of life. There is no, there's no option here. I paraphrase that, Lord, but you know that. Thank you, Father, for the work you're doing. Please, Lord, let your Holy Spirit, the hound of heaven, chase us forever. And we thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, you guys. Good night.